came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and this is our first new episode for 2019. At the end of last year, we went on an extensive road trip to some of Australia's premier radio and optical observatories and produced our Astro Tour series. Our tour finished at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex in Tidbinbilla, where we spoke with Glenn Nagel. Now, because this episode was recorded some time ago, some of the missions Glenn refers to have now already happened and have been successfully completed. And we know this because of the amazing work that's carried out at the CDSCC. Please enjoy Astrophys episode 75, The Eagle Has Landed. This is an amazing story from Glenn. Hello, Glenn. How are you? <laughs> Very good. Thank you for having me here, Glenn. Today we are speaking with Glenn Nagel, who is CSIRO's Outreach and Administration Lead and NASA Operations Support Officer at NASA's Deep Space Network at the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex here at Tinbinbilla in Australia. We first spoke with Glenn exactly two years ago when he told us how the CDSCC has a 70-metre antenna and three 34-metre dishes that have supported over 100 missions from at least 27 countries and currently listens to and sends commands to over 40 spacecraft actively on missions throughout our solar system and beyond. Earlier this week, as part of our Astro Tour, we interviewed your CSIRO colleagues at the Parks Dish, which, in common folklore, transmitted the 1969 Apollo moon landings. Now, I've just come in from outside having a look at the decommissioned DSS-46 dish that was at Honeysuckle Creek in 1969. And everyone knows and loves that great Sam Neill movie, The Dish, but it doesn't tell us what really happened. Glenn, can you tell us what really happened when that iconic transmission happened that told the world that space travel was a reality. So we're kind of fortunate right now, so we're literally looking out the office window at that dish, the Space Station 46, which was originally located, as you said, at the Honeysuckle Creek's tracking station here in Canberra, about 25 kilometres from our station here at Tidbinbilla. And when that antenna was at that station, of course, it had a very important role, uh, which, as you said, most people sort of know about the movie, but the movie is a movie, not a documentary. It doesn't really tell the whole story. And what happened on that day, they really should have put it into a movie because it was still amazing and entertaining and everything else. 
what actually was supposed to happen on that day, NASA's plan was to use their big dish over in California, what was a 64-metre antenna at the time. They wanted to use an American dish to show two Americans walking on the moon, beating the Soviets there and winning the so-called space race. But they had a little problem. When they received those first signals from the moon, they had to send the picture from Goldstone, California, over to Houston, Texas, to NASA Mission Control. But somewhere along the way in all the excitement, somebody at the Californian station had forgotten to flick one particular switch in the right orientation. And this just happened to be the switch that was taking in the signal from the camera on the lunar module. So just after Neil gets out of the spacecraft, he pulls a handle outside the door. That releases an equipment shelf. On the equipment shelf, there are experiment pieces they need for their work on the moon. It also had the camera. Now, the camera was mounted, pointed it away so that it would be pointed towards the ladder and would automatically switch on. But the camera was actually mounted on that shelf upside down. Now, that sounds a bit funny, but it was done for a reason. So that its handle would be pointed up so that the astronauts could easily grasp it with their big space-suited gloved hands, flick a little catch, lift the camera up later, put it onto a tripod, and then be able to carry it off on a long cable about 50 feet from where they were, where they'd landed so we can get a wider view while they were work, doing their work on the surface. So back here on Earth, a video technician would have to flick a little switch to put that signal through a conversion circuit to flip the picture up the right way. Now, the person who was on duty that day at Goldstone, uh, who was the video technician to train to do all that, he'd actually been called in sick. So he couldn't come in. So his backup was on, but his backup, had forgotten to flick that one particular switch. So when I came up on the big screen at Houston, first images of Neil Armstrong coming down the ladder about to walk on the moon were upside down. So obviously we couldn't show this to the world. You know? So NASA looks to Australia. We kind of came to the rescue. So we had three stations that were supporting Apollo 11 on that day, and that was our station here at Tibbinbilla, Honeysuckle Creek, and we had the use of the Parks Radio Telescope. So their big 64-metre dish at the time was the biggest dish in the country before our big 70-metre dish was built here. But at the critical moment, as Neil was coming down the ladder, Parks didn't quite have a TV picture yet. Not because of any problems with Parks and all the switches the right way around. It was really because Neil and Buzz, you know, had gotten ready early and were ready to go for their moonwalk several hours before, before they were expected to. The schedule had told them first, you know, they had to land safely, get ready for a relaunch case of an emergency and then go through a, maybe a six to eight hour eat and sleep period. But they moved that up and said, no, no, we, we want to go early. So that meant for Parks, and they sort of depict this in the movie, that the moon hadn't really risen yet high enough into the local skies for them to get their antenna over far enough, lock on and get a clean signal. So key moment in space history, he's about to walk on the moon, big dish in America, upside down picture, dish at Parks, no picture at all. Uh, also at Goldstone, their picture that was upside down was actually highly degraded. So when they did figure out the switch problem, the picture was highly contrasted. Blacks were very black, whites were very white, so you could make out a lot of detail. So they looked to the other station. Now here at Tibbinbilla, 24 hours before the moon landing, it was going to be our station handling the, the lunar module on the surface, and Honeysuckle Creek would have been on the command module. But there was a fire here that damaged the power system for the transmitter-receiver system on our single dish that we had here at the time. So backup plan went that Honeysuckle Creek would handle the lunar module, we would be on command module. Our director here at the time, a gentleman called Don Gray, 
he got his best engineers to get in and get that system fixed by the morning. We're not going to miss out on Apollo 11 after all this time. So his uh, best engineers had to work in an area probably not much bigger than a couple of telephone booths in size. This is an engineer who also suffered claustrophobia, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but he got, with his team, got that system up and running. So we were ready to handle the command module with Mike Collins. And so Honeysuckle Creek, uh, they were carrying a TV signal coming in after Neil had switched on, you know, after this camera had been switched on. And uh, they had a great picture coming in. The picture was the right way up. <laughs> and when NASA saw that, they flicked the switch at their end just in time so that 600 million people around the planet could watch Neil taking his final few steps down the ladder to plant his left foot on the moon and uh, out of those immortal words. You know, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So... The first eight minutes or so of the broadcast were all through Honeysuckle Creek, and that was what was seen right around the world. Uh, when the moon was high enough in the sky at Parks, Parks used uh, a, an offset feed to be able to... It wasn't quite, the signal wasn't quite in the main beam path yet, but they were able to take sort of a signal coming sort of off the side of the dish and be able to orient the receivers so that they started to get an image in. And over the next few minutes, as that image improved and... Pictures from Parks and from Honeysuckle were going up to ABC Studios in Sydney who were selecting what best pictures to send out to Australia and the rest of the world. So eventually, just after the eight-minute mark, they switched to Parks with its larger receiver and uh, then, of course, relayed that signal over to the United States and then to Houston and out to the rest of the world. Interesting side note is that, of course, even at the speed of light, radio signals travelling from the moon then to Australia and then to the United States and then out to the rest of the planet still takes a little bit of time. So actually in Australia, we probably saw the moonwalk about a third of a second before <laughs> the rest of the planet. That's a beautiful piece of space history, Glenn. Thank you. Now, let's zip forward to today. Can you fill us in on some of the latest missions that rely on staff of 90 here and some superb infrastructure and space science to capture data and transmit instructions to robotic spacecraft all over the solar system. Who are you talking to and listening to these days and nights as we're sitting here? So, yeah, we do have over 40 missions out across the solar system. I'll run through kind of the solar system. So, currently, seven spacecraft just studying the sun. The latest of those missions is the Parker Solar Probe. And uh, that mission will make the closest approach ever by any spacecraft to the sun to 6 million kilometres from its surface, literally skimming through the sun's outer atmosphere. Uh, by the time it makes its closest encounter, which will be on Christmas Eve 2024, we plan way ahead, uh, <laughs> it will be travelling at over 201 kilometres per second. Cool. It will be the, one of the fastest spacecraft ever. And uh, it will help us understand a little bit more about the mysteries of the sun. So the sun gets a lot of attention with spacecraft. Mercury at the moment, the number of spacecraft have visited there over the years. Towards the end of October, there's a new mission, European and Japanese mission called Bepi Colombo, heading off to continue exploring the planet Mercury. It will take uh, quite a while to get there. Uh, it needs to do a lot of flybys around the sun and the inner planets to get enough speed to be able to keep up with Mercury in its orbit around the sun. So, again, a lot of forward planning on that. Venus right now, Japanese mission called Akatsuki, continuing to explore our sister world, a continuation of previous missions that have visited there from uh, the European's Mars Express mission to the United States missions like Magellan and the Russian Venera probes. Then Moon. So for us, deep space, of course, is everything Moon and beyond. 
So the moon right now, there are five spacecraft there. Three of them we track. Two of them are currently Chinese missions. And China kind of is going it alone at the moment. They're not using the deep space network, although there are agreements signed up. If they send missions further afield and off than deep space, yes, they will certainly be using the deep space network's capabilities to talk to those spacecraft. And over the next few months, three more spacecraft are planned to go off to the moon. Another mission from China, which is planned to land on the far side of the moon, first mission to do that. Israel sending their first mission to the moon, which is, will be a little lander and a hopper to hop across the surface of the moon. It was a, a mission that was developed originally for the Google Lunar X Prize. But when that uh, competition was cancelled, their spacecraft was still ready to go. So they're apparently getting a uh, piggyback flight, perhaps with a SpaceX mission. And then India sending their second mission to the moon, which is a three-parter. It's an orbiter, a lander, and a rover. So we're going to have a little rover driving around on across the surface of the moon, sending back you know pictures from the lunar surface. That's going to be really exciting. Right at the moment, busiest place really in the solar system is still Mars. It, we consider it the traffic jam of the solar system. <laughs> so eight spacecraft there right now, six in orbit, two robot rovers on its surface. Uh, rover Opportunity, of course and then rover Curiosity. And uh, then there are another three spacecraft currently on their way to Mars, arriving in late November. First one is a lander, which is the InSight probe, a seismological mission from Mars, from, from NASA, and uh, with uh, components from other countries around the world. And then two CubeSats, the first deep space CubeSats, Marco A and Marco B, which will fly by Mars but they're going to provide a relay for InSight as it's landing on the surface. So we'll have direct communication with InSight, but also this relay capability. And they're kind of using these CubeSats as a bit of a test to see can we use these small... In fact, they're only about the size of a briefcase. They're very tiny spacecraft. Can we use them for deep space communications as relays? Uh, could we potentially send CubeSats across the solar system to act as a sort of a, a deep space interplanetary internet? And so that's going to be a really interesting mission in its own right. Between Mars and Jupiter, of course, the main asteroid belt, we still have the Dawn mission out there orbiting around the dwarf planet Ceres at Jupiter right now. NASA's Juno spacecraft in its extended mission continuing to explore Jupiter. And, of course, the public using its cameras to send back beautiful pictures yeah. uh, from Jupiter. Uh, nothing at Saturn right now. You, you remember, of course, when last year we... Had the end of the Cassini mission, we shed a few tears on that day. We ate a bit of cake, we put the, you know, put the champagne cork and everything else. A, a bittersweet moment in space exploration. So Saturn is kind of on its own at the moment, but our, our spirits are still there with Cassini. We still talk to, of course, the New Horizons spacecraft, which passed Pluto in 2015. It's now heading off to a new destination in the Kuiper Belt, over a billion kilometres past Pluto. Uh, for a January 1st, New Year's Day 2019 encounter with the uh, small Kuiper Belt body known as 2014 MU61. Yeah. Hoping for a better name for it before we get there <laughs> so I don't have to keep saying 2014 MU69. And then missions are visiting asteroids at the moment, the Hayabusa 2 mission from Japan, yeah. OSIRIS-REx from NASA heading off to asteroid Bennu later this year. And then, of course, uh, several deep space telescopes, the uh, Spitzer Space Telescope, the Chandrax Space Space Telescope and others, and then we're still talking to the twin Voyager spacecraft. Yes. Oh. How far away are they at the moment, Glenn? So the Voyager spacecraft have been out there for uh, over 40 years, 41 years now, 
and uh, they are a long, long way away. So Voyager 2 is about 17 and three quarter billion kilometers away, but Voyager 1 is currently the most distant spacecraft at over 21 and a half billion kilometers from Earth, nearly 20 hours each way for communications now uh, with that signal traveling at the speed of light. So it's not quite a light day away, but it's getting there. How is it that you can still talk to it? What's Is it a really tiny bit rate? Tell us about the signals a little bit. Yeah, so we, we always talk about here we're, we're all about capturing whispers from deep space. And literally Voyager signal is a whisper. It's even a whisper of a whisper. Voyager transmits to us pretty much every day using about maybe 19 watts of energy from its transmitter. So less than the power it takes to run the light bulb in your refrigerator. So imagine trying to see less than your fridge light from a distance that's four and a quarter times further away than the orbit of Pluto. That's already really tiny. But by the time that tiny signal travels all the way back to Earth, the signal spreads out, becomes so thin and diffuse that the signal we actually receive at our disk surface is currently equivalent to about one twenty billionth the amount of power generated by a tiny watch battery. It's currently around about minus 156 microdecibels or about 6 times 10 to the minus 22nd kilowatts. It's virtually nothing. We could collect that signal from Voyager for a billion years and that still wouldn't warm up a cup of coffee. Yep. Astonishing technology you have here. Now, I know you guys don't sit on your hands. Can you tell us about some of the upgrades that you've had to your technology here over the years? So, of course, the the dishes that were built here on site, most of them, well, the big dish, of course, was built back in 1969 or between 69 and 1972. And a dish remains a dish, so a nice parabolic surface to act as that focusing capability to get these little tiny signals in. But it's the gear behind the dish that makes all the difference. So we have done a lot of upgrades to the ears over the receivers. Moving to new types of receivers that are super cool by liquid nitrogen to be able to keep the vibration out of the receivers to cool the instruments down so far that basically the only outside influence that they will be affected by is literally that radio signal coming in from deep space. Uh, So a lot of improvements to that technology. Vast improvements in transmission capability because we've needed to be able to send out signals even further afield. And, you know, first missions were just off to the nearby planets now. Of course, we're going way beyond the giant planets now with spacecraft like the Voyagers going into interstellar space. So more powerful transmission systems that we've required over the years. And uh, we can pump out, you know, 100 kilowatts or more of power from our our big 70-meter dish. Of course, uh, that dish will also be getting additional receiver technology moving it in different frequencies. So over the years with all of our dishes, because of increased radio frequency interference, noise from radios, televisions, mobile phones and other things, that makes the world a noisier place. You know, satellites, planes, all electronics. So... We need to have better receivers moving into higher frequencies to get above that background noise generated by the planet, by human beings, so that we can continue to talk to our spacecraft. Now, eventually, one day, we might even have to move completely out of radio frequencies. We might have to move move literally into the optical 
part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Lasers. So lasers, infrared, we could be moving even higher than that in, into the future. So you'll find over the next decade or so that we'll be doing some more in-depth testing of optical communications with spacecraft. There's even a potential for a future dish here, which could be an optical radio frequency hybrid antenna. So actually coding part of the surface of the dish with optical receivers to test out that kind of communications. And there has been some of those tests you know, done on very small scales between uh, the Moon and the International Space Station with a, a little mission called Laddie a few years ago. The other side of it is the processing. So when you get all these signals in from space, they're also coming with a lot of just radio noise from the rest of the universe. Stars, planets, galaxies, all noisy in radio frequencies. So you've got to get processing systems that can kind of sort out the junk mail of the universe and just keep the message, the information that you actually want from the spacecraft. So the processing, being able to pull out that tiny signal from all of that noise, that has gone through enormous leaps. Where In the past, it may have been, you know, one uh, rack, a box sort of telephone booth size, full of computer gear doing just you know one task the computer technology is now is that that same rack is doing a dozen different tasks and so a room that was once full of hundreds of those racks is now down just to a handful so there's constant movement in what we do we're always trying to stay at the leading edge of what is possible we're inventing new technologies here new processes here new automation systems now, all of that, of course, we share out with our colleagues at our other stations in the network in Spain and California. They equally, when they do their improvements, they share with, with us. So we, the whole network stays at the leading edge of space exploration. Fantastic, Glenn. Now, we should mention the wonderful outreach and education programs, school excursion facilities and exhibits you have coming out from your Canberra Space Centre you have here. It's great that you're inspiring our next generation of space scientists. Like Australia's now got its own space agency. That's very exciting. But we're going to need those young people coming up through to crew the whole shebang. Now, can you give us an outline of what you have here at this facility apart from talking to spacecraft? So we have our visitor centre, which is the Canberra Space Centre, and about 70,000 people a year come along to find out a bit more about the who we are and what we do with the exhibitions and displays on the sort of past, present and future of space exploration. And in amongst all those visitors, of course, we, we see about 10,000 school students every year. Myself and my colleague, Dr. Karim McDonald, we run our education programs here and usually sort of a 90-minute program telling students about, you know, what a great role Australia plays in space exploration and always has, about the great possibilities for them in the future now that we certainly have our own space agency and an ever-growing space industry in this country. So we want to promote to them the idea that they can take what is a common thing, you know, their interest as explorers. Everybody loves exploring in one way or another. And, of course, particularly kids love for things, all things space because it's the great mystery around them out there in the universe. And to take those two things and to learn the science, the technology, the engineering, the maths, the STEM subjects that will then lead them into careers in those areas. 
With the kids, what we do is we, we tell them much more about all the possibilities they have in the science, technology, engineering and mathematics areas to encourage them to look at potential careers in the space field because obviously we have a selfish reason. We want somebody to replace us when we retire, but we want them to go out and do more uh, in Australia and around the world in space exploration. And the more we can encourage them to sort of follow their interests and to show them how exciting science actually is, and particularly in the space exploration field, that that may encourage them to, to think about some amazing possibilities of things that they could do, even if it's, you know, not becoming an astronaut or a rocket scientist, even if it's just somebody who maybe trains the astronaut or somebody who invents an interesting bit of technology or just do the research to actually look at all the huge amounts of data that a place like this receives every single day. And we can tell, we tell them and say, look, it might not be something that, uh, you know, you get to do in the future, but even if it's just something you want to do as a hobby, you can do this sort of stuff because there are all these wonderful citizen science projects that they can get yeah. involved in. And, of course, a citizen science project, that could just be a hobby thing, exploring distant galaxies or, you know, looking at, for new planets and uh, discovering, discovering things on Mars or looking at the latest pictures from somewhere and trying to interpret it for us. They can take that as a hobby, but they could take it into a serious direction where they could take some of the experience they gain through citizen science programs and basically add it to their resume. And I think there's a lot of companies out there who kind of like the idea that you get these kids who get a bit excited about research, you know, who want to look at these sorts of things, maybe have an analytic mind and will take, uh, you know, the initiative to go and do something within whatever business that they happen to go into. Fantastic, Lynn. When visitors come here or when people go on the internet and they see these amazing pictures, what they don't see is you've got people on staff here. What are some of the teams that are working here behind the scenes to make it all happen? Can you tell us about the teams you've got working here, Glenn? So, yeah, I always like to say we've got an idea of some of the best engineers, technicians and spacecraft communication people anywhere in the world. Pretty much an all-Australian team. There's one Kiwi, but we forgive her for that. That's okay. <laughs> as long as she doesn't beat us at cricket and rugby. But, yeah, we have people who are really expertise in their particular area. You, you can't go off and do a university course in deep space communications. We find people who have good aptitude and attitude in particular areas. So we might have people who are mechanical and structural engineers or people who are experts in cryogenics or hydraulic systems. It might be people with technical backgrounds in radio frequency work or in computers or computer programming. And we get those people and we bring them in and we literally just train them up to our standards so they can do that job. So say, for instance, the people that work in our control room, our mission control centre, which is a little bit like an air traffic control centre but for the universe. And uh, you get people in there who they will train for at least a year before they're even given the opportunity to run a console on their own to set up a link to communicate with the spacecraft and to, to run that particular tracking pass. So uh, I think our youngest person on team in the control room at the moment probably has about 15 years of experience because it's, it's a field that once we get somebody and they turn out to be really good, we don't want to let them go. And so you'll find people at this site, I think our average working time here is currently about 17 years. 
We do get new people in all the time, apprentices. We're always bringing new electricians, new mechanical people, uh, lots of trades people. And then on occasions when our operations people retire or move on to something else, that, yeah, we'll, we'll bring up new people behind them. And I think there's probably nothing more exciting than being able to get a job at a place like this. You know, you, you're getting to work for NASA and all the other space agencies you become a, an employee of CSIRO, you know, Australia's chief scientific organisation, and there's a lot of pride, you know, in doing that kind of work, and a lot of great satisfaction of being at a place where you're literally part of making history every day, and I, you know, it's a great thing. I can go to my nieces and nephews, and they can say, "Oh, yeah, Uncle Glenn, did you see that thing that happened on Mars the other day?" And I said, "Yeah, it was our station that made that happen," and you know, I think that's a, the the great thing. The people here are probably the most dedicated people I've ever worked with at any place. If something breaks at three o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day, they're here you know, fixing it and making it all happen. Awesome, Glenn. Thank you so much, Glenn Nagel. It's fantastic to meet with you again. And thank you again for the invitation to be here just 12 months ago, almost exactly, to watch those final signals come in as Cassini plunged into Saturn. It was both sad and exhilarating, and thanks for today, Glenn. Awesome as usual. And remember, listeners, if you haven't been to Tidbin Villa, you haven't been anywhere. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks very much. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brandon. It's great to be talking to you again, Ian. Welcome to our 2019 season. And it's great to be back on again. And I hope your 2019 has been rather good, both normally and astronomically. Yes, it's been pretty hot here so far, but we've got some great interviews lined up this year. And I'm really looking forward to your sessions where you tell us what's up, Doc. Well, there's lots going on. The morning sky is where everything's happening at the moment. In the Southern Hemisphere, you have to get up really early in the morning. But let's start with the evening. At the moment, there's very little in the evening sky. The lonely planet is Mars sinking into the west. And Mars is going to be visited by the crescent moon uh, on the 10th and 11th of February, which will look rather nice. But something that is interesting and is difficult to see uh, without binoculars or a small telescope is the conjunction of Mars and Uranus. Now, Mars and Uranus are coming closer. Now, Mars and Uranus are closest on February 12 to 13, when they'll be about a degree apart. So this is a very good binoculars and for wide fields uh, telescope objectives. So that should be uh, something interesting and unusual to see. In terms of planets, as I said, the morning skies is where everything's happening at the moment. You have uh, three of the bright classical planets all lined up in the morning sky, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. So what you will see if you're watching over the coming mornings, you'll begin to see Saturn rising from above the horizon heading towards Venus, and the pair are closest on the 16th to 17th, where they're again about one degree apart. This will look quite nice in binoculars 
uh, although you won't be able to see any detail in uh, either uh, Venus or Saturn. The, the uh, magnification will be too low, but you should be able to see a rather distinct oval shape to Saturn uh, because of the rings. In a small telescope eyepiece, a wide-field small telescope eyepiece, 30 millimeter or possibly possibly a 25 millimeter, you should be able to see the pair together. But then again, you won't be able to see uh, very much detail. You'll just be able to see the rings of Saturn, and you might be able to see the fact that the uh, Venus is in a gibbous shape. But it was still quite interesting to watch with the unaided eye over the coming days. Lovely. It'd be nice to, to look in the uh, in a telescope eyepiece, even though you won't be able to see too much detail, just seeing the pair of them close together. So getting up early in the morning is a thing to do, Ian? Up in the morning is the, is the thing to be doing. Something else that is going to be interesting is well, Venus is very close to a number of interesting clusters at this moment. Now, Venus will move through the clusters quite rapidly. At the moment, it's very close to or within the binocular range of the open cluster M23. And during the next few days, you're going to be seeing it moving through the Jupiter and Lagoon Nebula, and then you'll see it coming close to the large globular cluster M22. In the case of Lagoon and the Triplet Nebula, uh, the problem is Venus is so bright that it will possibly uh, wash out your view of the nebula. But with M22, it's quite, because it's a globular cluster and it's, mo it's mostly stars, you should be able to get a good view of the pair of them together. So that will be a quite nice thing to see. Fantastic. Another thing that's coming up is the close approach of Comet C-2018 Y1 Ibermoto. This is a recently discovered comet, which has been uh, brightening uh, rapidly and uh, will eventually become bright enough to be seen with binoculars, possibly even in naked eye. According to reports I've seen from Australian observers, it's either just above magnitude 8 or just below magnitude 8, but it's brightening nicely and it's on track to, be to a maximum magnitude of either 7 or 6.5 on, the, on the, the 12th of February. It's best seen from Australia and, uh, uh, in the early morning. Uh, same goes for the Northern Hemisphere. So it's best, best seen in the early morning. It's uh, relatively easy to find because it's at the moment scooting above the stars of uh, Virgo from our point of view. Uh, from the Northern Hemisphere's point of view, it's scooting under the stars of Virgo. And then we'll pass through the constellation of Leo the Lion. But on the 8th of February, uh, the comet is within binocular range of Beta Virginis, uh, which is uh, relatively easily seen even over, under suburban skies. Uh, then on the 10th, it's within uh, easy binocular range of Sigma Leo, which forms the foot of Leo the Lion. Then on the 12th, at its brightest, it's just a fraction below, from a southern hemisphere's point of view, it's just a fraction below Regulus, the brightest star in Leo. From the northern hemisphere point of view, it's just a fraction above of a binocular width away from uh, Regulus. And then on the 13th, it's almost on top of Eta Leonis, the bright star which forms the star of the sickle of Leo. So it'll be quite easy to see. Although it won't be spectacular, it'll be very nice in, uh, in binoculars and small telescopes. 
yep. some of the images I've been seeing from the Australian observers have been looking quite nice. Mostly it look like a, a fuzzy blob, but it may have a small tail developing over the next few days, which would be quite worthwhile having a look at. That's terrific. And now, what else are you looking for in general this year? What are your big highlights for 2019? Sadly, tragically, there aren't too many big highlights for 2019. There's not too many really big ticket items happening at the moment. The very few major occultations, which will be um, visible to most of our listeners. Most of the solar eclipses are very out-of-the-way places. The year's lunar eclipses are all... For at least for Australia, they're rather sad partials occurring at horrible hours. <laughs> One thing that is happening this year, which is of interest this year, we have a pairing of a, a perigee moon and an apogee moon, which could be quite interesting. Now, perigee moons have been called in the media supermoons, probably to try and make them more exciting and interesting. Uh, but a perigee full moon is when the full moon occurs when the moon is closest to Earth, so they're bigger and brighter. Yep. than normal uh, full moons, although it can be very difficult to tell the difference between uh, a perigee full moon and uh, most of the ordinary full moons. Of course, the opposite to this is an apogee full moon where the full moon occurs when the moon is furthest from Earth. Yep. So if you take a photograph of a moon at perigee and if you take a photograph uh, of the moon at apogee, and then using the same instruments and the same scale, so, so everything's the same. And if you put the images side by side, you'll see a significant difference in, in the size of the, of the moon. Now, this year uh, is not the most fantastic. The, 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 uh, the full moon that's coming up for us on uh, February the 20th is a couple of is a, is a couple of hours away from perigee, so it's not as uh, as as big as other possible perigee moons, and the apogee moon is something like 14 hours away from apogee, so it's not an ideal pairing. However, this this apogee perigee pairing will be the best we will have until 2030. All the other ones that are occurring are. Uh, are much are much uh, further away from both apogee and perigee, so you won't see very much difference at all. That sounds like a, a good astrophotography challenge for people. It is, a, it is a very good astrophotography challenge, and it takes a little bit of organisation. And as usual, uh, you may be all set up to take your um, uh, apogee or perigee moon shot and clouds come over, but mm. these things are sent to try us. The other thing that's occurring, which I forgot because it's not going to be visible from Australia, is the transit of Mercury. Now, transits of Mercury are when uh, Mercury passes in front of the Sun. And like the transit of Venus, they're quite important for things like working out the exact distance of the, of the Earth to the Sun. Transits of Mercury occur more often than transits of Venus, but it's still uh, between them. This will be the fourth time this century that Mercury will transit the Sun. Now, Friday misses out, as does Japan, Indonesia, and a large chunk of Asia. But um, the best places to see the transit will be in South America, and you'll see uh, uh, decent transits in uh, chunks of North America, uh, Europe, and uh, Africa. So the transit of Mercury is quite interesting. Of course, uh, like watching solar eclipses, you have to be 
uh, fully prepared to be using either safe protection techniques or have an appropriate solar filter. Again, it's not out of the range of most vendors, but you have to be an experienced solar observer in order to do this safely. Unlike Venus, where Venus is, is relatively large, it can be easily seen transiting the solar disk. Mercury is smaller, and although obvious to a trained observer, can be a little bit hard to pick up. Yep. However, it is going to be, it can be possibly seen from parts of New Zealand. So it just so happens I'm going over to New Zealand for a conference, and I'm trying to see if I can organise to go there early enough that I can uh, hook up with some local amateurs and uh, watch the transit of Mercury uh, at sunrise from New Zealand, which would be kind of cool. Well, I know that Ian Griffin's very excited. Mm, yeah, I think he's, isn't he trying to um, organise a trip to the bay where Captain Cook anchored on his way back from the transit of Venus? Flipping will be watching the transit from a historically important site. Very good. I'd just like to uh, point out that while before the moon waxes too much, this is an excellent time to look for the summer constellations uh, from us from the Southern Hemisphere slash winter constellations from the, uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Of course, the uh, Southern Hemisphere has some constellations you don't get in the Northern Hemisphere. But, for example, the constellation of Orion is still dominating the sky for us. It's easily seen, very beautiful. And in the, the, lo the local uh, Ghana, um, people see the constellation of Orion as a warrior called Tinyangara. And just down, of course, from the constellation of Orion, Tinyangara, uh, is the Hyades, very distinctive A-shaped or V-shaped, depending on how you see it, cluster uh, with the bright, uh, bright red star, Aldebaran, uh, anchoring it. And then below that, the, uh, the delightful cluster of the Pleiades. Uh, again, to the Ghana people uh, of the Adelaide Plains, they're, they're known as Mankamanan uh, Karaana. So, an excellent time to look at those. For, for us in the Southern Hemisphere, if we turn our faces to the south, the Southern Cross is beginning to pull up from the uh, Southern Horizon to the Ghana people. The Southern Cross was known as Wilto, uh, either the eagle itself or the uh, footprint of the eagle. And then above that, you have the broad sweep of the Milky Way going up through the False Cross uh, to um, uh, Sirius and beyond. Um, delightful observation at the moment. So uh, while your skies are clear and you've got these really beautiful constellations, why not have, have a look, especially in the, after, in the evenings? We don't have lots of bright planetary action. Uh, so if you're not partial to getting up uh, early in the morning, wandering out in the evening and, uh, and looking at these delightful constellations will be absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. And now forgive my ignorance, is the core of the Milky Way above the horizon at the moment or is it still below? The core of the Milky Way in the evening is still below the horizon. If you're up early in the morning watching the planets, the core of the Milky Way is just beginning to come up above the horizon. And at the moment, Saturn is uh, in the handle, or just below the handle of the teapot, 
so the uh, and also just below the core of the Milky Way, and Venus will be uh, traversing below the core of the Milky Way very shortly. Fantastic! I know there's a lot of astrophotographers that love capturing the core. Yeah, well, they are going to have to get up early in the morning to see the core. <laughs> very good. Okay, well. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great to hear What's Up Doc again. No worries. Okay. All I can say to everyone is uh, go out, look up. Uh, Any time is a great time to, to look at sky. Fantastic, Ian. Yeah, bye. So here we are with our first Astrophys News Roundup for 2019. When we started this podcast back in 2016, we thought that after we covered the history of radio astronomy, we'd do a couple more episodes to keep up the latest developments, and that would be it. Thing is, we discovered that radio astronomy, space science, data science, optical astronomy and particle physics are all developing at such an astonishing pace that there's no way we can keep up with it all. So we continued anyway and have found that by interviewing the actual scientists working in these specialist fields, we're finding great insights into not only the brilliant discoveries being made on a weekly basis, but also the how and why these generous researchers do their work. A consistent set of messages are also coming through. Pure research must be funded and supported by governments. If governments insist on research that only has a short-term return on investment, then we might as well move back to the Dark Ages because that's not how the advancement of human knowledge works. Another message is that diversity, equity, fairness, respect and decency are essential for healthy science communities for any communities. Any hints of misogyny, sexism, nepotism, overwork and mistreatment and abuse of the goodwill of our current and next generation of researchers continues to diminish our capacity to understand our universe and our place in it. That said, here is the Astrophys News. First, If you'd like to see a brilliant short video of the last billion years of comets and asteroids impacting the moon and converted to music, go to tinyurlcom forward slash billion moon, all lowercase. Next, the Milky Way is warped and S-shaped according to a new 3D map. And the further you go out, the more distorted it becomes. The Milky Way is a spiral galaxy that contains 250 billion or so stars, most of which are found in its inner region. The paper by Jianlian Chen, Xu Wang, Li Deng, Richard de Gris, Chao Liu and Huao Tian, which was published on Monday in the journal Nature Astronomy, maps the location of more than a thousand bright young stars across our galaxy. Professor de Gris said the new map would help in the hunt for dark matter, adding that it 
could act as a benchmark for other work, such as the European Space Agency's Gaia telescope's mission to map a billion stars in the Milky Way. ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimetre Submillimetre Array, has spotted two stars forming in the same protoplanetary disk, 11,000 light-years from Earth. But they are far from identical twins. One star is huge by even stellar standards, 40 times more massive than our Sun. The other is just one eightieth that size, indicating a very different history. The largest star, known as MM1A, formed by traditional means when a dense cloud of gas collapsed under its own gravity, triggering fusion reactions in the high-density, high-temperature core. But at some point, a portion of the swirling disk apparently broke away or fragmented, forming the core of the diminutive companion. Astronomers have known for a long time that most massive stars orbit one or more other stars as partners in a compact system. But how they got there has been a topic of conjecture, said Crystal Brogan, an astronomer with the National Radio Astronomy Observatory at Charlottesville, Virginia. With ELMA, we now have evidence that the disk of gas and dust that encompasses and feeds a growing massive star also produces fragments at early stages that can form a secondary star. Next. Big news now for Pink Floyd fans is that China has successfully landed on the far side of the moon, which ironically is only fully dark whenever we have a full moon. A fabulous shot of the far side of the moon and planet Earth is now doing the rounds on the interwebs, Look it up if you haven't seen it already. China's Chang'e 4 mission made history by landing on the far side of a moon last month and now it's exploring the area in unprecedented detail. As China's Yuta 2 rover explores the surface, its lunar satellites are relaying back to Earth stunning pictures of this mysterious and hard-to-reach area. The photo I'm referring to was taken by Longjiang 2, a small satellite that a Chang'e 4 relay satellite unloaded on its way to the moon last May. Longjiang 2 is small, 55 kilograms, and is around 50 by 50 by 40 centimetres. That's 20 by 20 by 15 inches in size in some arcane measuring system. It was meant to be part of a pair with Longjiang 1, but its sibling malfunctioned and became inoperable. Only one of these two microsatellites was outfitted with an optical camera, and luckily for us, it was Longjiang 2. Congratulations to the Chime teams in British Columbia, who've just discovered some new FRBs, including the second only repeater. We still don't know what event triggers FRBs, but that hasn't stopped speculation like this from America's ABC News Network. Aliens. Astronomers can't rule out that possibility after an exciting new discovery. A team in Canada recently stumbled upon ultra-brief repeating waves from deep space for only the second time in history. 
I'd like to point out that astronomers can't also rule out that FRBs are caused by unicorn farts. Seriously, congrats to the CHIME team as the hunt for both FRBs and an understanding of the mechanisms that causes FRBs. My guess is we'll find a lot more FRBs before we're certain of what causes them. The caveat here is that I've never been a very good guesser. And here's a reminder that good science is about making and testing predictions. The heavens delivered a bit of scientific vindication to Yale Professor of Astronomy and Physics Priyamvada Natarajan. Her 20-year-old theory about winds from distant black holes was proven correct. Back in 1999, when she was a graduate student at Cambridge, Natarajan predicted that cosmic winds driven by a black hole could potentially carry gas and other star-making material thousands of light-years away from their host galaxy. Natarajan's theory was right. A research group led by astronomer Mark Lacey at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Virginia recently reported the observation of just such a wind flowing away from a type of supermassive black hole known as a quasar. The researchers found evidence of winds blowing hundreds of thousands of light-years away from the host galaxy. Yes, there is more news from the Parker Solar Probe, the Mars InSight mission, Eta Carina, my secret love, and the effect of the US government shutdown had on scientific research. The Netherlands has just joined the SKA, and New Zealand hasn't. But you'll have to look those up for yourself. And in our next episode in two weeks, we are speaking with Dr Shari Breen, who holds a research fellowship at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the University of Sydney. She's been awarded the prestigious Bolton Fellowship and has worked on some of the world's and Australia's most powerful instruments, including the Parkes Dish and the ATCA. In 2015, she was named a L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Fellow for her work on understanding how the largest stars in our galaxy are formed. So next episode is Monster Stars. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.